of course people say nasty things too that happens but like if we do not have the conversations we got to go there we got to go into the wound and we got to press out that pus and for me like when i get upset i kind of go through all the human emotions and then i'm like okay so now how am i going to fix it and it's a kind of grandiose desire of like i'm going to use this weapon of art to change humankind otherwise why the fuck am i doing it Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Prof. Chris Dakhri, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Tracy Rose, currently Senior Lecturer in the Fine Arts Department in the Witt School of Arts and internationally renowned as an artist who works across a range of practices most notably as a performance artist using her own body as material. Tracy's work has recently been featured in a major retrospective exhibition at the Zeiss Museum of Contemporary Art Africa in Cape Town. Curated by the new director of the Zeiss, Koya Kua, the exhibition was called Shooting Down Babylon, The Art of War. The title references one of the works on the exhibition, an installation which reflects on exorcist and cleansing rituals from non-Western communities. In this discussion, we look at Tracy's trajectory as a radical artist, activist, and provocateur from her upbringing and early schooling in Durban and her arts education at Witz, where she qualified for a BA in Fine Arts before studying for an MA at Goldsmiths College at the University of London. We touch on her exhibition at the Zeistmacher, but go into greater depth into her use of photography and video, both significant aspects of her artistic practice overshadowed in the critical discourse by the dynamic physicality of her performance work. We also discuss the way that she's recognized on the international scene as a black African artist, but how in South Africa that identity is burdened by the still active apartheid definition of colored. We then go some way towards unpacking the paradoxes of hypervisibility and invisibility, which afflict an artist such as Tracy, who deploys her own body as a site for protest outrage, resistance, and discourse. Finally, we explore Tracy's growing interest in the connections between artistic practice, shamanism, and non-Western forms of spirituality, as manifested in works such as Shooting Down Babylon, The Art of War. In the text for this podcast, I provided links to Tracy's audio walk-through of the Zeitz exhibition, which I highly recommend, as well as key articles of published criticism and other podcasts with Tracy which I think are worth your attention. Tracy, welcome. You've reached a significant milestone with this major retrospective shooting down Babylon at the Zeiss Mocha, which has been running over the course of this year. Can you talk about your trajectory as an artist activist starting with your family background and what I find particularly interesting, your education in Durban. Hi, Krista. Thanks for the invite. I was born in Addington Hospital, which is right on the beach, in the coloured section. <laughs> and at the time I was born, apparently there'd been a coloured woman who'd given birth to twins. And one of the twins was classified as, as other coloured and the other one was classified as mixed. And... There was a huge protest because colored people were like, yeah, you don't know what to call us because, you know, even in my own family, 
the racial classification sort of terminology is different. My dad didn't get a classification. Um, his birth certificate is just the breakdown of his parents. His mother was from Santa Liana Island and his, his dad was from Mauritius. And then my mother was classified as Cape Colored, I think, and my sister was classified as mixed. So my birth certificate is just blank, which I find hilarious because in Afrikaans, the word blank, when you look at it, is blank. Because it translated from English to which it doesn't mean the same thing. And so I kind of feel like that was the moment where things were sort of fraught, you know. And it sort of, I suppose, escalated in some sort of ways from there because my dad, on returning women to this weird, like, uh, fly now, pay later kind of uh, scheme to North and South America. And when I was like five years old, when he was in the States, he'd heard Archbishop Hurley on a radio interview say that. Catholic Church in South Africa doesn't practice racism. The implication was that they were integrated. The actual fact was that each race group had their own Catholic school. When we came back, I'd actually been kicked out of the colored Catholic school in Sydney, just St. Teresa's, because we were underage. I was like five and I started and then the inspector came and he kicked all the five-year-olds out. And my folks were like, no, they really want me to go to school. And my dad wrote a letter to the bishop basically telling him, I like my version more than the sort of I think my, mine is a little bit more mythological, I guess, <laughs> that he wrote a letter to the bishop basically saying that the Catholic Church is antichrist because they practice racism and the schools weren't integrated. So he wrote, the bishop wrote a letter to Mars Stella, which is the school I ended up going to, basically telling them, you know, to let me in immediately. So I was like the guinea pig. I was like the only non-white kid from primary school to high school. Yeah, it was horrible. <laughs> And the thing is, like, nobody kind of, like, explained anything to me. One minute I'm with my people, the next minute I'm, like, surrounded by... And I didn't, you know, it's like, we had, like, contact, but never in that kind of way. I mean, my parents had sort of white friends, but I never had anybody my own age that was white. The stratification within our, like, socializing was so severe that, you know, the race groups never touched. They never crossed. In terms of, I suppose, of white and non-white. And I kind of say white and non-white because I think that... And I think there's only really two kind of race groups. And I think, you know, white people who want to negate their whiteness can always call themselves white and non-white. I didn't know that white people, like, pooed. <laughs> My cousin and I would be like, there's got to be a reason why they hate us. Yeah, it's because we shit. <laughs> They don't. <laughs> and so I remember like my first week at that school, I went to the toilet and I saw the water was yellow and it was the kiddies toilet. And I was like trying to do the map. I was like, oh my God, I thought the toilets were just for us. <laughs> I probably started having nervous breakdowns from that age. <laughs> anyway. Also going to a convent what had previously been a white-only convent. It was also your forcible encounter with Catholicism. Well, I mean, I wanted to be a nun. <laughs> I loved Catholicism when I was a kid. I used to fall asleep saying the rosary. When you're a Catholic girl, you either want to give birth to the Messiah or be the Messiah. <laughs> but I suppose that was the most kind of comforting element was that even though the, it was also it was like Nazi Catholicism it was just so severe I was always being beat up like by teachers and nuns you know it was a lot of bullying it was just it was absolutely vile uh, absolutely hated at school then when I was in what was standard one which was at grade three my mother was banned in Durban 
because my parents are both trade unionists and I didn't know it at the time that she, yeah, she wasn't sort of allowed to work there anymore. She had been blocked because I'm still a bit kind of rusty on some of the details of it, but they'd been working in a trade union. It was a lot more kind of inclusive. It was pretty multiracial. There were still elements of conservatism, I guess, within that, but I mean, it was pretty progressive. So she went actually to Kosatu for training and she was told that if she goes to what was considered a black trade union, she would be in deep trouble. And that's kind of what happened. So they basically left Durban and moved to Johannesburg. And I didn't actually know what was happening at the time. I just saw like everything in our house being distributed amongst like family members. And my sister and I went to New stay with my grandmother for the balance of our school year. And that was also, that, I mean, that was pretty traumatizing in, in some ways. And the weird thing was like coming home, we used to get a, a ride from family friends whose kids eventually, the school became a lot more integrated, whose, whose kids went there. And sometimes they would drop us off at the bottom of our street on my grand's road. And my sister and I would walk in like full school uniform and we had a hat and it was like this red uniform and you had to wear your blazer and, you know, your socks had to be like two inches above your ankle. It was all this like kind of these rigid sort of uh, rules. And if you were caught walking around without your blazer on, you would get detention. Anyway, so we were walking home up the street and there were girls at the bottom of the street in a place called a gully. And they were screaming at us, yeah, you think you're white? And swearing at us and throwing stones at us. It was awful. Anyway, when we moved up to Johannesburg, it was absolutely amazing. I loved Johannesburg. It was, I mean, it was kind of oppressive in some ways, but my parents looked incredible. I mean, they gave us so much freedom compared to, you know, my cousins who were forced to stay at home and just go to particular places, also because the neighborhood was pretty dangerous. But I think those sort of kind of formative moments were also just around my maternal family side. We were very close to my grandma and my grandpa's, maybe it's called my grandfather Pops. And my cousins, you know, every every holiday we spent going down to Durban and my mum would stick us on a taxi. First it was planes and then it was too expensive. Then it was buses. And then somebody told them about the roller coaster taxi. And you would hold your pee from Joburg to halfway. <laughs> I mean, back then, I mean, it's a height of apartheid, right? So, you know, these designated spaces for non-whites to go. They were completely overloaded. I mean, you know, in, in those spaces, you're stuck in an intimate environment with complete strangers for like several hours. <laughs> How did you end up studying art at Wits? Well, when I was at Maristella, the only thing I was good at was art. And I discovered this when we had to draw The Last Supper. It's like a major moment for me. So my sister was like, my mom was the one in the family was always good at art. So my sister was like, you know, ask mommy to do it. So I asked my mother to do the, the drawing of The Last Supper. And she, she did this like ad sketch that was like double pages. I took it to school and everybody was comparing their Last Suppers and... They were like, oh, look at Tracy's. Hers is so cool. Did you do it yourself? And my sister Penny said to me, whatever you do, if they ask, just say you did it. So I was like, oh, yeah, I did it. And I was just, everybody started tearing their last suppers out of their books and asking me to do these drawings for them. And I was terrified because I hadn't done it myself and I didn't know how to do it. And then all I did was look at my mother's line. I copied her line and I did like 12 last suppers. I, mean, I did like a crate, I'm exaggerating the number, but it was, it felt like a hell of a lot. And at that point I'd been given the uh, status of being the class artist, even though I don't think I was, I was the best sort of illustrator in the class, but 
you know, it's, it's like friends of mine who, who are athletes, they say whenever they, they ran against all white schools, they would run harder. And, you know, it's kind of the only thing that I, I could do better than all of them you know, better than the white girls. So, you know, it became a space with just also not just like respect, but also I suppose self-respect, you know, in a way that I hadn't had before. And that's the only thing I really ended up focusing on. I mean, my marks at school were always lousy for everything else but art. Let's move on to your exhibition at the Zeissmarker, which has been running since February. And to my great frustration, I haven't been able to see the exhibition. And I think a lot of our listeners haven't had that opportunity since it's down there in Cape Town. And even the ones in Cape Town couldn't afford the entry fee for the Zeissmacher. Can you just briefly talk us through the exhibition? What would a visitor to your exhibition experience? And it starts off with a title piece, which is Shooting Down Babylon, The Art of War, which was a, Someone like kind of almost like a homage, I guess, in some ways to Namjoon Pike, but also to the sort of history of television as I kind of know it. So I've got, you know, the sculptures made of various scales of television, which are placed like a totem for aspects of my body. So it's, you know, feet, legs, and it's a torso and head. And then I've got these old school aerials kind of coming out on the side. The documentation of it is an ayahuasca journey I went on in Neisner, the sort of the concept of brushstrokes of red paint around it. And, you know, from, for me, the idea of war and warfare is this bloodlust. I mean, you, you know, there's, there's ways we can avoid war and bloodshed. Bloodlust is because men don't bleed. I mean, these all kind of provocations. I mean, you know, they, they're sort of simplistic kind of statements in, in order to kind of provoke some kind of reaction when I say such things. You know, the idea is that, you know, menstruation happens monthly and men don't bleed. So therefore you get the Christ figure who, who does the bleeding, who is the kind of conclusion to the bloodshed in a sense, which doesn't really happen. Doing this ayahuasca journey was like trying to understand what's happening on, on sort of on the, on the other side. And I've done ayahuasca well, several times. I think I started doing it 15 years ago first in the Maluti Mountains and then just like at different locations. When I do it, I say that I'm, I'm going to like Spirit University because, you, you know, you get these really vivid experiences with sort of entities kind of like schooling you, you know. So you move from this as the entry point, the sort of red entrance hall, if you wish, and then you, into a space where the, the show is contextualized with the photograph of, of the kiss, which is the photograph I did with my former gallerist, Christian Hay. And the idea was with that particular photograph, I originally wanted to do it with a boyfriend of mine at the time, and we broke up before I could do it. And the idea was, uh, initially, I was going to call the piece African American. That was sort of the working title of it until I changed it. But I was interested in the relationship between colored South Africans and African Americans, and how I saw one as displaced psychologically and geographically in in terms of um, the African American experience, and the other displaced as it was also geographically in, in a sense but for me it was more kind of a psychological displacement and you know looking at the history of slavery between both groups 
And I wanted that conversation to start. You know, there was the Alibaba, that the, the the ship that landed in Cape Town, that also influenced blackface, basically, which is the the, the carnival, the minstrel carnival that happens in Cape Town, Twitter, Nibaya. You know, I also grew up in African-American culture. You know, we were saturated in R&B and we knew more about African-American culture and cultural experience than I think we had acknowledgement and respect for our own in a lot of ways. Just in terms of how African-Americans place their bodies in the front line in order to liberate so many. And that influence was global. And then you move into the second room, which is hormones and uncivil memoir of a rough ride. And hormones is spelled W-H-O-R-E, capital M-O-A-N-S, one word. This Initially, the title was supposed to also be a, a sort of footy piece series, looking at also at war and battlefields and stuff. And I actually went down to Isantluana to do some research because I wanted to kind of do something with that space. But that never kind of manifested. And what I ended up doing for the for Documenta was a kind of introduction to what would be the 40-piece series of, of the original kind of uh, concept. And the first one was Cleopatra was a Black Bitch. And I got that title from a stand-up that Paul Mooney did. And in it, he was basically berating white history by saying, you know, why is it that Cleopatra is always represented by Liz Taylor or some white woman? He's he's like, you know, you've got Helen of Troy, like keep Helen of Troy, you know, but like Cleopatra is African. When he said that, I mean, you know, the offense... The, the resonance of just the violence of, of that statement. It's not even about him being, you know, it's not about misogyny in, in terms of, I mean, that's what stand-up comedians do. And for me, that's the ultimate goal is to be a stand-up comic. I mean, I absolutely love stand-up com- comedy. It's the, the, the sort of end point for freedom of expression. It's the culmination of what that means. And I thought, like, you know, how do you create a disruption in order to create a, a space for conversation? And that's what I felt that moment when he said that. And I went and I researched what he said because he, that's what he would do. And he was, he was like college educators. He used to write for Richard Pryor, just in, incredibly smart, well-researched information, you know, that's a slap when you listen to him. And I wanted to do the same thing within the space of most particularly, I was, you know, my aim was, was to do it for Athens because that documenter was both in Athens and in Castle. And how to kind of reclaim, because, you know, the Greeks were influenced by the Egyptians. Egypt apparently was like New York for them. You know, they emulated everything that the Egyptians did. But you don't hear about this because of the doctrine of mainstream history. My friend Chris Martin, who I've collaborated with on multiple works, when I first met him, that's how he introduced himself to me. He told me he was Cleopatra. And I just loved the fantasy and the illusion of this incredible person, like, you know, living in the space where they've created this persona to exist within. And I also just wanted to immortalize that moment because he's incredibly influential, you know, more in the sort of underground circuit, but I see the influence that he's had in mainstream ways because if he hadn't affected people in particular ways, they would not be producing kind of mainstream accessible kind of works, I guess. There were other components. I mean, I've included Lesechel Rampola King's quotes from Blackheart. There's a quote from Marcus Garvey. I've got a, my dad's in the work as well, and he kind of represents Tzafendus' head in some ways, but also this kind of weird, like, I suppose, like ancestral head figure in, in some ways. And I've got my mother and my son in there as well. 
the show is quite big. I'm kind of taking you through. <laughs> Do you want me to consolidate? <laughs> okay. What I'm very interested in is the way that because you use your body and you use your book, you have used your body as a primary material in performance. And so much of the critical attention has focused on the way that you use your body, the various forms of provocation and a flagrancy. But most of the time that is always through, it's mediated through video or through photography. And although she's a much less extreme figure, what I'm reminded of is Cindy Sherman and the way that Cindy Sherman used the camera, the lens, to extend the possibilities of self-transformation. And I wondered, could you speak a bit about your relationship to the lens and how you've used the lens, the videoing, the photography of your performances, your physical performances, in ways that perhaps allows some space that's not there when it's just direct performance with the body and the viewers or the body and the spectators. The video and the photographic works, I mean, those are autonomous works. They're not simply documentation of performances. I mean, those are quite considered. They're incredibly controlled, incredibly doctored and manipulated. They're standalone artworks. Not simple record. I mean, I document it's a, it's a different form of art making. Of course, Cindy Sherman's work was was also a major influence when it came to considering how to do the photo documentation. And initially, there were two reasons why I, I started doing performance. The first one was when I was in varsity, I, I wanted to major in sculpture and in printmaking. And at the time, printmaking included this sort of classic kind of etching making kind of processes with, you know, Litho and silk screening, but it also included photography. This was like mid-90s or early 90s. At the time, video wasn't really considered a strong, it was still, it was still quite a kind of new sort of art medium, in, at least in South Africa. It wasn't considered a, a you know, a, a, you know, it didn't have the sort of status it has now. And my feeling was that I wanted to create sculptures and destroy them, but photo document them. And I remember telling Alan Crump, uh, who was our professor in HOD at the time, that I wanted to major these two, and I wanted to destroy my sculptures. And he said to me, you can't destroy your sculptures. You can't destroy them. And I was like, huh? I mean, this was like, but anyway. So I was like, okay, um, let me just major in, in printmaking because then I'll, I'll get a skill set that, you know, at least I can feed myself off of, which is also just an illusion. But my sort of primary thing was that I did not want to create commercial art. I didn't want to make work that was sellable because I thought there was more sh there was enough shit in the world. I didn't need to contribute more to it. That was the first thing. It was like my anti-capitalist gesture, you know, like how do you sell a gesture? How do you capitalize on that? How do you turn it into a commodity? You can't, you know, I mean, now you kind of can. But back then that was my, my sort of position. And then the, also the other thing was... All the other art disciplines are really expensive, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, using your, your, your body is the cheapest, easiest medium. That was also another kind of uh, reason. But then in, in the space of that, like how do this, you know, art for me is also fundamentally about beauty. You know, how do I create something that just in terms of aesthetics is, is also on par with things that I, I find just 
visually lush and, and beautiful and, and seductive. I absolutely loved my, my art training. It was it was really thorough. I mean, I mean, I mean saying it was kind of white supremacist because the narr- narration in terms of art history was was highly problematic. But it was really really thorough. There were two major influences outside of my bits undergrad experience. And oh, actually one was within was the first was the Johannesburg Biennale, the first Johannesburg Biennale in 1995. And the second one was Dr. Robin Chandler, who was on a Fulbright scholarship and she was in the history of art department and she was teaching African-American art. And those had a huge impact on me, those two experiences, teaching third years, and I was in my fourth year already, but I would attend all of her seminars. It was just so incredible, again, because, you know, of the richness and, and the, the fight that African-American artists put up, and um, it was very empowering. But in terms of, like, the video, I get really formal about my video and photographic, but also just the the more kind of tangible, material-based objects. With the video work, I'm trying to find also just the essence of the alchemy of, of this light, of this moving light, you know, and the way that it works in tandem with photography. And I feel like what I loved about video was that it was like a photograph with just immense possibilities. And the stillness of the photograph is very painterly, the way it's constructed, where you've got like all these layers in terms of creating this sort of ideal image in photography. But I've tried, I'd be a lousy press photographer, for example, because I always miss the moment. I mean, I've got to doctor the scene and actually just put the camera on lockdown and take the image. But photography, you've got this moment where, you, okay, first you kind of conceive the idea and sort of map out what it's going to be. And then you kind of arrange the scenes. But you've got things that you can play with. You've got costumes, you've got toys, you've got props. You've got all of these elements that kind of create this narration within this confined space. And then on top of that, you can take that image and put it through a digital process where you can start to doctor it. Before the digital process, I was doing black and white, even within the darkroom of manipulating light and doctoring the image in that space. It really is painting with light for me. I'm a frustrated painter. So for me, it's like, how do I take this medium and mix color, you know, and kind of get the sensation of application with the brush? And and then with video, that's kind of also my addiction to television. I absolutely love TV. I love TV more than I love movies. There's something quite stabilizing about it. Our first TV was a black and white TV. I did a kind of a tribute to it a few years ago in Berlin. The whole neighborhood would come and watch our TV because we were the only ones that had one. And just like also that that space of a kind of communal sort of spirit, but also, again, how that doctored image is able to infiltrate your psyche and manipulate you. And that's the other dance that I absolutely love, not just about video, but art in general. The, the amount of kind of like manipulation you are allowed on a psychological level, like how you can manipulate your audience by what it is that you create. And that's a very kind of Sherman thing in some ways, because if you looked at every single one of her photographs, it's like the gesture, the costume, the, you know, the coloration, like all of these things are so highly considered. You've moved backwards and forwards between South Africa and the international circuit, you know, the centralized international circuit of contemporary art. And on international circuit, you are recognized as a black African artist. But back here in South Africa, I know that you have to deal with these residue of apartheid categories, notably colored, which still seems to have a lot of resonance in this country. I'm reminded of that incident 
which you might have heard of. I know you were in Salzburg, but we had an incident just a week or so ago where a school teacher was shouting at a colored pupil and her grandmother, and she was calling the grandmother trash and shouting at the pair of them, saying that she, she does not like coloreds. And there was a video made and circulated, became quite viral. And the teacher was, in fact, a black woman and was in a completely uninhibited way, the way that a sort of white racist nowadays, I think, would have some inhibition. This black teacher was completely uninhibited about abusing this colored pupil this way. And I think it was just a reminder of how these ethnicities rather than identities continue to operate here in South Africa. How is it for you as an artist having to negotiate the difference between that automatic international recognition as black African artist and then back here in South Africa where, yeah, there's this entire residue of sub-ethnicities that, that seem to continue to weigh down on, on, on people's understanding of each other? I mean, like I said to you earlier, I feel like there's just two races, white and non-white. And I think within the non-white category is a whole mess. <laughs> the automatic assumption is so-called people of color actually get along. It's not true. Everybody's racist. This is the bottom line. Everyone is racist. The manner in which we are being socialized globally is to distrust, not even just to distrust. We create stereotypes for ourselves and for others. That prejudice is, you know, it can be superficial or it can be extreme. And I actually didn't know about this uh, incident until I got back. And the reason I found out was one of my students sent it to me. Because I'd seen the headline, something about teachers suspended for calling grandparent trash. And I was thinking when I saw it, I was like, oh, God, you know, like really, South Africans? Does everything have to be a drama? And then I saw the video and I was like, oh, okay. One of my honor students, she's working on issues around her identity as a uh, colored South African. That's spelled K-U-L-L-I-D. And, you know, that's a subversion of the categorization of colored. And I think it's a conversation that really needs to be had between black and colored South Africans. It's their conversation. And I mean, trying to figure out how to actually not just start it or being part of it. Because oh, I feel like part of me is like, I really don't need the burden of having to deal with all this bullshit. But I spoke with a friend of mine and he's a single man. He's Zulu. And he was like, black and colored people need to realize that that granny who was raped was our granny. That woman was our granny. And also realizing, so these sort of micro and macro prejudices and stereotypes also surrounding those two interconnected relationships and the history that's never been spoken about, you know, the tensions and all that. And I kind of like, part of me like really doesn't really want to go into it because I find there's a lot of intolerance around discourse. There's not enough. And I feel I don't want to be that voice. I don't want to be the one carrying the burden of all of this cuck. But how can my work start to intervene in some way. So I'm working on a piece that starts to look at it. I mean, I'm looking at the word Mlao, for example. I'm still trying to find exactly what that word means, but apparently it's, it's a really deep insult. For colored people, it's a word which is on par with, you know, K-word, the N-word. You know, I think disruptions are a necessity in order for stagnations to shift. And if this disruption is a step towards that conversation, then I'm down for it. But I, like I said, I'm not going to do that, let alone it's way too much of a burden. But a friend of mine, Tandi Grenville Gray, she says that race is a red herring. And the distraction of race is that we're all talking about it as if we aren't all affected by just the basic needs of survival. 
And the more we focus on that, the less we actually get to do the work that's necessary to fix things like the environment, like economic disparities, education, just fundamental things that could actually go a long way to healing, fixing, remedying this constant kind of crisis of racial warfare that we're stuck in. I had an epiphany like a a month ago because I was preparing for um, the Summer Academy in Salzburg in Austria. And I was like tripping. I was like, oh God, I don't want to do this. It's like so hard. I mean, I spoke to people. I was psychic, whatever. I was like, should I do this? Should I do this? And I was really terrified about going because I'm like, I'm going to Hitler's homeland. And I mean, I think that the sort of alchemy of what we do as international artists is when we go into a location, we're there to contribute something that's beyond just ourselves and just making something aesthetic. And, you know, it's, it's, it's supposed to create a shift within that environment, also obviously within our practices. But the thing that kept playing in my mind was like, I'm going to stop a war. I'm going to stop a war, which is kind of a bit of a fantastical kind of desire. But it also struck me that 8 billion people on the planet, under 1 billion people are white. And I'm like, damn. And they've managed to not just oppress everybody, but they've managed to also just fuck up the planet. And that, you know, kind of feeds into the whole thing also of like white versus non-white. It's like the illusion of race, you know, is that we don't all bleed the same. Going to Austria, and I was thinking, wow, like almost 100 years ago, there was another white guy who decided he was going to take over the planet and, you know, fuck it up and blow it to smithereens because he was entitled to. And how that kind of gets justified. I'm not really answering in some ways what you say, but it's just I feel like it's got a lot to do with a whole big mess of sort of racial drama. I'm so tired of it. I'm like, dude, this is so lost century. Can we please move on? Like another generation of kids are going to have to go through this? Like, really? Come on, we can be smarter than that. I would hope that we'd find new ways to have conversations. I mean, I love the idea of Invisos, which in my mind is you sit and you talk until the shit is done. And in Long Walk to Freedom, Mandela talks about the moment when he was a kid and he would see like his uncle, everybody would come around, all the chiefs from all the villages, everybody, there was a problem and they would sit under this tree and whether it was seven days, seven weeks, people would sit and they would talk and they would talk and they would talk and they would talk until things got resolved. And that's what we don't do. We don't take the time to talk. You know, we've got all of this legislation and all this bullshit categorization and all of these things and laws and whatever. That doesn't resolve issues. All that does is incarcerate people into a limited sphere and space of just like maintaining as much as you can so that you don't crack. And of course, we get pissed off with each other's life. Of course, people say nasty things too. That happens. But like, if we do not have the conversations and the in-depth conversations, you know, with this slotintrana, we got to go there. We got to go into the wound and we got to press out that pus. These things will always happen. And then they blow up in the media and then you get us versus them issues. And then ah, we're starting from scratch again because immediate memory is just about that incident. It's never about what led up to things, you know, and the questions aren't there. Yeah, I mean, I'm still processing all of this. And for me, like when I get upset, I kind of go through all the human emotions and then I'm like, okay, so now how... Am I going to fix it? It's a kind of grandiose desire of like, I'm going to use this weapon of art to change humankind. Otherwise, why the fuck am I doing it? You know, it might just be a soft fart, kind of dissipate and not really do anything immediately. Or maybe three, four years down, there, maybe never somebody picks it up. And, you know, and that's the thing to kind of keep constantly doing these artistic gestures in order to create these disruptions. And also like conversations like this, you know, when I was thinking about this question, you know, there's a whole range of things that were going through my mind, which I never would have thought of if you hadn't provoked me with this question. Tracy, maybe a new way or a way forward is 
something that you have, I know, been exploring recently, and it did figure in your Zeismacher exhibition. But you've been talking about your growing interest in the connections between artistic practice and shamanism, and spirituality, and how are you exploring this this particular path? And is this a way beyond these endless repetitive conversations about race and culture and identity, or does it engage with those in a different way? Crystal Witz used to, I don't know if it still does, had the soul mandate on all the rock art sites in the country. And for me, that's the moment where art is made. It's from the cave, you know, and I feel like we need to return to the cave because when we were in the cave, of course, there were sort of formulas and the way that we see the people painted in the same kind of manner, but there were no galleries. There were no, this is my ideological kind of romantic view of it, I guess. This is that we were making to heal. These were rituals for cleansing, for healing, you know, the dance, the music, the painting, and the sort of theatrics, also the theatricality of it all. And so for me, to find meaning in why I feel this urge every day to make a work. And I say it doesn't come from me because it really doesn't. I mean, I, I have life experiences and shit like that. But it's like, there's this point when I was like suicidal for a really long time. And every time I wanted to kill myself, I'd be like, okay, today's the day. And I'm trying to figure out the quickest, most painless, most effective way. And then just when I'm about to get it right, it's like, ding, I get an idea for an artwork. And that work chases me until I, I make it. And I was talking to some of my students about it because for me, that's that space where you get a calling. And I was going to Twasa. You know, I've gone to various Sangomas to find out how to go about it. And various people were going to initiate me and stuff. But they fall short because I don't just have one sort of ancestral lineage. So I've got European, I've got African, I've got Asian, I've got Native American. But they always, the Native Americans always come up when I do my ayahuasca trip. There's only Native Americans. I don't see any African present, which is very strange. They once told me it's because there's more of them on the other side. So for me, it's that space of spirituality where it's like, what's the communication between the metaphysical and the tangible, the material? And I see this with my students, like a lot of them are misdiagnosed and all that they are is essentially kind of uninitiated healers, because that's what we do with our art. People feel good when they hear music. They're happy after they go to a dance, whether it's ballet or, I know, I, I have the best fun when I'm on the dance floor. That's my temple. Deep house. <laughs> I used to go into trances, you know, I'd be dancing for like nine hours, you know, no drugs, no alcohol, just a couple of sips of water. You know, and I didn't even realize it at the time. And that's possibly where that moment, that epiphany happened where I was just like, I'm able to do this with my body and feel energized. That was the thing. I felt so energized after I danced. And that's the space that I feel like for me being at Vitz is wanting to find a way to have the conversation revitalized or more vital. You know, the relationship between what we do as artists across the board, the music, dance, film, fine art, everything, and theater and that relationship to the cave. Can you just tell me something quickly? The session that I ran at the summer school in Salzburg was entitled Provocation and Magical Terrorism. And it was crazy. I mean, it was incredible students on the course. 
And I went in to disrupt them, knowing that it was going to be Europe and, you know, the, the, the classes were from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. every day. And I was like, geez, I, I don't know how anybody can sit in a room. I don't do PowerPoint presentations. I'm going to do a PowerPoint. That's an artwork. It's not a lecture. And I was like, how do we disrupt their notions also of timekeeping and of structure? I had two weeks to essentially take students from point A to a full-on exhibition. And when one of my former uh, students was also on the course, it was amazing, you know, because I realized like how loud South Africans are. Oh my God, we are so loud. The students, Portuguese, South African, another student who is a former student who's studying for an MA in Switzerland, she also came around. And at some point we were like two o'clock in the morning, we were hanging out in my room and, you know, smoking and drinking and eating and chatting loud. And some German voice across the road screams in German, and Adilson, uh, this is to Oliveira, he was on the course. He said to her, I don't speak German. And she says in English, oh, it's getting late. You guys got to go to sleep. And it was weird in that moment, what struck me was how confident he was about speaking to it. And I kept getting like really anxious because we were both very disruptive. At one point he was called a fucking gypsy because he had his shirt off. It was a super hot. And we were talking about the limitations of Austrians. I'm like, okay, so what you're going to do first is find the limitations. So we had, my assistant was supposed to know about Austrian law and know how we couldn't get arrested for doing the performances. So Dilson texts me at like two o'clock in the morning. He's like, Tracy, I just discovered the limitations. You know, it's boiling hot. I took off my shirt and this guy like said this to me. And I was like, wow, like you actually experiencing what it's like to be black in this space. And then also just to kind of also see, when he told this woman, I don't speak German. I was like, wow, he did it with such confidence and no fear. And I was constantly afraid that he was going to get arrested or be in trouble. And I realized that it wasn't white privilege that had him say that. It was the security in himself comes from a certain way of being socialized. With him, it's not about entitlement, but it's just about the confidence and security of being socialized in a particular way. So I said to him, you know, if they called the cops, he says, no, I would have gone down and spoken to him. And I know if he wasn't white, he would have not possibly behaved that way. Kind of that moment of magical terrorism. And I want to change the title because I, I should have actually changed it before I had it published, but I didn't take time to think about it clearly, to change it to T-E-R-R-A, so it's earth-based. And it was like this group of people came together with all of these students and they created a phenomenal work. There was this woman, Renata was like born in 1963. Her family's from Eastern Europe. Her mother's family were all exterminated really by the Nazis. And she was making work about migration. And she never told us, you know, her, her family history, but you know, the work was incredibly beautiful and aesthetic to look at. And then at some point it's like, yeah, but why are you talking about this? I mean, you're a privileged white woman and you're making work about migration and other women's experience. And, you know, and there was somebody from Lebanon, there was somebody from Guatemala, like all the brown people in the room were like, eh. but one of the guys who's Austrian and he was like, my grandparents were Nazis. He absolutely hates the whole kind of German history. And he's amazing. He's an absolutely brilliant performer. Uh, subverting all of these kind of tropes all the time, every day, daily. I mean, he loves his persona. And he also, he said to her, that's like really offensive. And so when she started crying, I went to go speak to her. And then she said to me, oh, you know, nobody knows this, but you know, this is my family story. And I said, but why didn't you say this? It would have changed our reading of the work entirely. And then she eventually, as the days kind of went on, I don't know, some people got upset with me because I wasn't teaching in a conventional sort of way. 
and two people left that what she delivered was incredible. She made this dress out of newspapers, this skirt of newspapers and this Bill Holland's flag. She delivered this incredible performance and she had like old white ladies walking up to her and asking her about her work as she was kind of getting into costume. And I thought, wow, nobody's speaking to these women. You know, she actually is speaking to a particular demographic that never gets spoken to. And then this performance, and this is also based on controversy that's happening in the current documenta. She said, why is it that the people who are talking, that are shouting anti-Semitism are the anti-Semites? She says, the conversation needs to happen. We can't stop this conversation from happening. Why is it that the murderers are judging the murderers? Something like that. But it was a kind of like this that complex thing of like basically calling out the fact that the people that have suffered are not the ones that are speaking, but the tormentors are. And I was like, but why aren't you saying this in German? And she was like, no, I, I was told not to say it in German. I was told to only speak English. And I was like, yeah, but it doesn't make sense. And we were all like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. So she says, nobody had ever told her to speak in German. And she started crying. And I didn't know this. My assistant came and told me afterwards. And the work was just so incredible. Oh, my God, the work is so incredible. I was so incredibly moved by the bravery of what they all produced within that incredible short amount of time. And for me, it was like, how do you get back to the point where you trust yourself? Don't even theorize it. Just what is the impetus that is driving you to make this? Just go with it. Your first thought is like the first mark on the canvas, first brush drawing on the canvas. Leave it. Don't scumble it. Don't do anything to it. Just leave it. That's the point where you trust yourself and you know that you're running on intuition. And we can like interrogate things afterwards. And that's for me, that moment of going back to the cave where you've had your current life experience, you have your ancestral lineage that you draw from, of all of the fuck-ups in your ancestral lineage that are now kind of dumped on you, that you experiencing ancestral psychological trauma from, that people are giving you pills for, when all you've actually got to go do is like fix that fucking angry ancestor. And then the other thing that you've got is your life lineage, your, you know, your spirit lineage, where your spirit has occupied space and time. And that means, you know, you could have been a dog, you could have been an elephant, you could have been another form of human. And I'm more concerned about also that line of fantasy where we take our work into the space of non-logic because I feel it's the logic that's actually kind of killing that form of practice where it's just okay sometimes you're not saying things that you feel that you believe in but you are being spoken through so say it because nobody else is going to do so does that make sense it does make sense Tracy it's been a fascinating opportunity to to talk to you on these topics we've now come to the end I think we could talk for a lot further, and I have the opportunity to do that. But thank you very much for making the time. Oh, Krista, thanks. This was fun. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Krista Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Bits School of Arts, and my guest, Tracy Rose. This podcast was hosted and produced by myself with technical production by Elna Schutz. It was funded by the Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for this podcast was composed and recorded by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>